turn back to Genesis then for our sermon text, which is chapter 49, verse 29, uh, to the end of the book. Genesis chapter 49, uh, starting in verse 29. Speaking of Israel, also named Jacob, it says, Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes... Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made mourning for his father seven days." When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him, 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word, which is a light unto us. A, something that was written by your inspiration for our instruction. And so we ask that you would guide us to understand it, to be moved by it, uh, to be moved to true piety, and to devotion, and to faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a point in World War II, a sort of a turning point in 1942, in which Winston Churchill gave a speech, and in that speech he said, now this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Well, we come to the end of Genesis today, and it's not the end of the story, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. We come to the end of this book, which has set the stage for the rest of the Bible, uh, the rest of earth history, uh, the rest of God's works, he has made promises, he, he will fulfill them. Uh, even at the end of the book, like I said last week, they're still looking forward as what will come next. Genesis has brought us from the creation of all things to the twelve tribes of Israel and the death of Joseph. Even as the lives of Jacob and his sons come to an end in these final chapters, the focus is on the still more distant future, on the exodus from Egypt, on the promised land, and on the promised Savior King. Just to review, the first two chapters are about the creation, creation of all things, chapter 2 narrowing in on, on Adam and Eve in the garden. He created all things by his word in six days and all very good. Chapters 3 and 4 then spoke of man's sin, the fall, as well as redemption, so that there became two cities, two groups of people, some taking after Cain, rejecting God's grace and living in rebellion, the city of man, as well as those who embraced the promise, who called upon the Lord, uh, like, like uh, Abel, like uh, Seth, and they called upon the name of the Lord, and that was the city of God. Genesis 5 through 11 speaks of 
Noah and his sons and their wives and surviving the flood that God sent upon the earth and then the dispersion of those peoples at Babel. And then Genesis 12 through 50 speak of how God would then continue in his purpose to save the nations, but now through a particular family, a particular man, uh, calling Abraham, even as uh, calling Abraham that through his offspring he might bless the nations. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob, God's covenant people. Um, In Genesis, God begins in the garden blessing Adam and Eve, giving them fruitfulness and land and a worldwide commission to fill the earth with the image of God to his glory. But mankind broke the covenant of works and became subject to death, corrupt in sin, aligned with the serpent rather than with God. But in the covenant of grace, God put enmity between a people and the serpent, separating them from the serpent and promising them a savior who would crush the serpent's head, the offspring of the woman. In this covenant of grace, which was renewed from generation to generation, God restored blessing to sinners and a promise of offspring and land and worldwide blessing. This covenant was received not by perfect obedience, but by faith, faith in God and his promises of salvation. Despite their sin, God would bless them making them into a multitude, being a God to them and their offspring, giving them an everlasting inheritance, and to bless all the nations of the earth through the promised offspring. After mankind had mostly fallen away from righteous Shem and Japheth, God began with Abraham and Sarah. And through their son of promise, Isaac, uh, there came Jacob and Esau, and then through Jacob, Uh, came the twelve patriarchs of Israel. And now we come to the death of Israel in our passage today. The death of Israel, and then finally the death of Joseph. Uh, In both cases, we find their faith expressed as they died. So first, let's look at the faith of Israel. The faith of Jacob, that is. In verse, the, the end of chapter 49. Israel said that he was going to be gathered to his people. Now, that doesn't refer to him being buried with his people. He says, I am going to be gathered to my people, therefore bury me over with them too. Uh, but it, he, he, at the end of the chapter, it says that he was gathered to his people, even while he was still in Egypt. He's speaking of continuing to exist after his death, that he would be gathered to those who had gone and passed on before him. When a person dies, his soul continues to exist That's not merely a New Testament belief. Israel looked forward to being reunited with his people. And as God would never abandon him, but as he had promised to be with him wherever he went, so he could trust God to care for him and his covenant people, even after death. So Israel's faith in God was expressed in this way and also by the directions he gave for his body. Although he was in Egypt, he told his sons to bury him in the land of Canaan, in the cave that Abraham had bought from the Hittites to possess as a burying place. This was significant because the promised land was significant. It was a symbol of their everlasting inheritance as God's people. And so burial in the land symbolized his share in the kingdom of God, uh, that that's where he was at home. This was not 
a symbol that was followed by all the Israelites who sojourned in Egypt. Many of them, doubtless, were buried in Egypt. Uh, But they would see themselves represented in their forefathers, that their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all buried together in the promised land. And being buried in the promised land, Jacob also communicated that they were not at home in Egypt, that they were God's people awaiting the inheritance he would give them, and that their home was in the promised land. It was to remind his descendants of their identity as a particular people set apart unto God, looking to his promises. He also communicated his solidarity with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, with Leah, with those who had been buried there earlier. And burial in the land showed confidence that they would return, that his descendants would eventually live there. It, they would not remain in the land of the Canaanites. I mean, it would not remain the land of the Canaanites forever. Now, he gave these directions. He must have been sitting on his bed, because then he pulls his feet back into the bed, and he dies. He breathed his last. He was gathered to his people. He died peacefully, confidently, uh, in faith, looking to what God would do. We can learn from the example, then, of Israel, who had lived a long life, though to him few and evil were the days he had endured to the end, looking to faith to, to God, should learn to receive and rest upon the promises of God, that he would be with us wherever we go, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so be grateful and rest in his care, in the inheritance that is kept for you, uh, that is unfading, imperishable, which even death cannot destroy. Learn from him to pass on this hope to the next generation, even as he took care in his last efforts, his last bit of life, to communicate this to his children, to his grandchildren. Prepare like Israel to finish well, to rest upon God even as death approaches. And we do not know when that will come. I'm pretty sure you won't live to 147 like he did. It'll probably come sooner than that. But however long it be, be prepared to run the race with endurance, to look to God in faith, even as death approaches, a faith that looks beyond this life. God is faithful forever. The second thing we find in this passage, not only the faith of Israel, and there's five points, so hopefully we'll go through them, not, uh, you know, keep up the pace here. But there's the faith of Israel, which is important, as he dies. But then Moses, who's writing this, spends a lot of time to describe the funeral of Israel. It was a vast company. Spends many verses describing the honor of Israel, the honor that was given to him following his death. I think it was significant. Uh, The text seems to make it significant. I think it's the grandest funeral ever recounted in scripture. Can you think of Maybe If you think of one that's grander, let me know after church. But um, this was a very significant funeral. When he was younger, Jacob had been at one point a fugitive from his home with the clothes on his back sleeping on a rock in Bethel when the Lord revealed himself to him in a dream, in a vision. But now as he dies, he's given the funeral of a pharaoh. 
I've read that the mourning for a, a pharaoh who died was 72 days, and here he gets 70 days. He's almost there. He's given a royal funeral in one of the greatest civilizations of the time. God had been with him, and God had exalted him by his grace. When he died, Joseph wept over his father and kissed him. Joseph, of course, had many people at his disposal. He had servants who were physicians who were well-skilled in the Egyptian practice of mummification, of embalming him, preserving him, which, of course, was especially important in his case because he was going to be carried back to Canaan. Uh, and uh, so would, was prepared for 40 days. They wept in the meantime for 70 days. And then with Pharaoh's permission, Joseph went to bury his father in Canaan. And get this, with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt. So this is like the Congress that's going up, the Congress of Egypt going up to bury him, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's households. Just their children, flocks, and herds are left because they're still going to return. Later in the Exodus, they're going to take their children and flocks and herds because they're leaving for good. But they are coming back in this case. But then also chariots and horsemen. You know, the, the Egyptian army is going to show up as well. And it's a very great company. They lament with such great and grievous lamentation that the Canaanites notice. And they named it the morning of Egypt. The mo- not morning like daytime, but morning like weeping. Morning of Egypt. Then Israel's sons go a little further and they bury their father together in the cave of the field at Machpelah. Just as at Abraham's burial, his sons came together to bury him, and at, at Isaac's uh, burial, Jacob and Esau were, were reunited in burying their father. So uh, the, the sons of Israel together bury their father, reunited, reunited more than any of the other brothers had been thus far, reunited in their faith in God. Now, this elaborate funeral demonstrates how God had highly blessed and exalted Israel, caring for him, making his name great, even as he had promised Abraham, I will make your name great. So he had made Israel's name great among the nations, among the Canaanites, among the Egyptians. It was also useful for his posterity and for the nations that they would not soon forget the patriarch Israel, that even the Canaanites would remember it from the place name in in Egypt. The Egyptians would remember this, that this was a significant occasion. And the Israelites would not soon forget this either, that Jacob had chosen to be buried in the promised land. Now, the honor of Jacob, I think, foreshadows the honor and exaltation of his descendant, Jesus Christ. We spoke last week, um, Christmas Eve, how Jesus humbled himself. He took the form of a servant for our sake. But then he was highly exalted following his death. Of course, Jesus is far greater than Israel. He is risen from the dead. He is seated at the Father's right hand. As Israel was exalted in the sight of the nations, so Christ has been exalted over all creation, visible and invisible, drawing now all peoples to himself. The honor of Jacob also foreshadows the exaltation of God's people in Christ. We have been raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ, God has made us kings and priests in him. He has taken us out of the dust heap and raised us up on high in Christ. We will be further exalted with Christ in glory at his return. We shall even judge angels. Uh, We will be exalted in Christ, reflecting his glory. Although you might endure suffering, 
trials, poverty, and loss like Israel did. Yet humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Hold fast to the Lord through thick and thin with hope. The third thing that we find in this passage is the sovereignty of God. See, after Israel died and his funeral was over and they returned to Egypt, his, Joseph's brothers began to get nervous. What if, what if Joseph was just holding back because he didn't want to grieve his father? What if he had just received them because of how he cared for his father and not for their sake? You know how when Esau was angry at his brother, he had said, after my father dies, then I'm going to kill Jacob. Well, what if Joseph had thought the same thing? So they're nervous. And so they send a message to appease Joseph, and then they go themselves and bow down at his feet and say, we're your servants. Please forgive us the wrong that we did to you. We'll speak of Joseph's kindness in a second, but in his reply, he speaks of the sovereignty of God. Not that God's sovereignty had excused them of their guilt, but it made it easier for Joseph to forgive them. Seeing God's hand at work for good made it easier for him to set aside vengeance and to forgive them. Genesis 50, 19-20 is remarkable, where he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we have human responsibility and freedom. They meant evil against Joseph. They did something wrong. Uh, They did it because they wanted to, and they had intention and purpose. They meant evil against him. But we also see God's sovereignty. God meant it, the same thing. He meant that same thing for good. He meant it to keep people from death, to keep them alive, to keep many people alive, including the people who were doing the thing, to keep Joseph's family alive, to keep the Canaanites alive, to keep the Egyptians alive. God was meaning the same event, had his purposes being worked out in that event. God was sovereign over that same event. So Joseph was sold into slavery because Joseph's brothers wanted to harm him and because God wanted to preserve the people of Israel and to save the lives of Canaanites and Egyptians. Human purposes and divine purposes were being worked out at the same time. What the brothers did was sinful. It was against God's law. They did it freely because they wanted to. No one was making them do it. But God had so ordained this deed for the fulfillment of his good purposes. He was sending Joseph on ahead, as the Psalms say, by this very event, working it out along with all things according to the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 says. He worked this by his mysterious providential power, which encompasses all things. God foreordains the free actions of men. He was not moving them by his spirit from within like he does good deeds within us. That's a more direct uh, inspiration of, of events that takes place by a spirit working in our hearts. But all things, whether moral actions or the animals of uh, actions of animals and beads and birds and the winds, all things are encompassed by God's providential power. God foreordains even the free actions of men. No one else can do this. 
This is something that you don't have a good, great analogy for. We can have some analogies, but they all break down because it's one of a kind. Only God does this. Perhaps the closest analogy is the way an author writes the actions of his characters. Uh, He's not doing those actions, but he is ordaining them and, and working out the story and his purposes. But no one analogy is perfect because no one else is like God. Uh, he is not like you and me. He is not simply another created being, yet bigger and stronger. He's not just some superman. Uh, he is God. He is uncreated. He's outside the system of created beings, not just one big, bigger uh, billiard ball that's going to knock the others out of the way. Uh, he's sovereign, working through everything. No one else creates all things out of nothing by his word. And so no one else holds all things together to, by his word. And no one else foreordains the free actions of men, working all things according to his own purposes, yet without doing violence to the will of his creatures and without being the author of sin. Instead, that proceeds from his rebellious creatures who have chosen to disobey him and to do unlawful things and are therefore appropriately judged for it or forgiven, as the case may be, uh, through his grace. So sinners rebel against their maker and do wickedness, but they cannot prevail in their war against God because they remain instruments of his will, unintentionally carrying out his purposes. The prophets would proclaim that Assyria and Babylon were wicked and proud and were deserving of judgment, and yet they were also at the same time God's rod which he was wielding to judge Israel. They were actually furthering God's purpose as they fought against him, and they too would be in turn judged for their rebellion. You cannot escape from his judgment, and you cannot escape serving God's purposes, even though it might not go well for you if you are rebelling against him. Likewise, the apostles proclaimed that the Jews and the Romans who crucified Christ were wicked and lawless, deserving of judgment, and yet they were carrying out what God had predestined to take place for the salvation of sinners including them. That's what Peter proclaims at Pentecost in Acts 2 and then again in Acts 4. They have gathered to take place what you have predestined to take place but by the hands of lawless men. In fact, the selling of Joseph foreshadows the crucifixion of Jesus. As Joseph's brothers meant evil against him by delivering him over to the Gentiles, and yet God meant it for good, to save the lives of many, including Joseph's brothers. So Jesus' countrymen meant evil against him by delivering him over to the Romans for his crucifixion. Yet God meant it for good to save the lives of many, including those who crucified him, saving them not merely with uh, bread that perishes, but with the bread of eternal life, to lift that curse of death, which was a theme back in Genesis 3, right? You eat it, you sin, you die. Well, now at the end of the book, we see the theme of God's purpose to give life. But of course, signifying a greater life than simply surviving the famine. This verse explains the story of Jacob's family, but it also explains the story of Genesis and of the world. That though man mean evil, yet God means it for good to save the lives of many. God's plan for good prevails and shall prevail. All was created good, 
sin came from rebellious creatures, but God's purposes are unshaken, and he will restore life to sinners doomed to death. He works out his purpose to bring about good and to bless his creation. The serpent doesn't win. God's purposes prevail. So take confidence in the Almighty. Resistance is futile. It's better to join with him, to receive his protection, that he might work all things together for your good instead. Receive the good that he has wrought for sinners, not just the bread in the famine in Egypt, but the bread of life that he has sent for your salvation in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do not fear the evil of man, for God's good purposes will win. Blessings shall flow far as the curse is found. Heaven shall come to earth. Sin shall be taken away. God will win. So may a confidence in God's providence and his power help you to set aside vengefulness and bitterness like it helped Joseph. That one is not desperate to resort to uh, vengefulness and uh, unlawful deeds, but is able to be kind because one is confident that God is in control. And that leads us to the fourth thing that we find in this passage, the kindness of Joseph. As Joseph receives his brother's petition, whether or not they made up the part about what their father said, um, he, he hears it, and his first response is to weep. He weeps because he sees that they still hadn't completely received his forgiveness, or had not taken heart, that they were still, uh, hadn't taken hold. They were still hesitant and fearful. His kindness shows itself first by weeping at his brother's message, then by forgiving them, by not holding their sins against them, not judging them, not doing as they feared. Also by encouraging them, by speaking kindly to them, to reassure them, to encourage them. And then by providing for them and their families. I'll care for you. I'll care for your little ones. Even though uh, they had sold them into bondage. The kindness of Joseph here is a type of the way Christ is kind to us. We have sinned against him. We come to him seeking his forgiveness. He is compassionate as a compassionate high priest. He forgives his people by not holding their sins against them. He encourages them, speaking kindly to us, that we might grow in our assurance, that we might grow in our confidence before God, that we might not fear as these brothers feared, that, that God would turn and hate them, or that Joseph would turn and hate them. And likewise, God provides for us, for our little ones, that he uh, shows his kindness in this way. It's also a compassion which you and I ought to imitate. Uh, to be kind like Joseph, to forgive one another, to comfort one another with these words. The fifth thing that we find in this passage is the faith of Joseph. Even as we began with the faith of Israel, at the end of this passage we find the faith of Joseph. As he lays dying, in the final verses in the chapter, he stayed in Egypt, he lived to be 110, he saw his great-grandchildren from both of his sons, he saw his great-grandchildren through Ephraim as well as through Manasseh. His great-grandchildren through Manasseh and his son Machir were actually counted as Joseph's own. They made full heirs of Joseph. 
Um, when Joseph came to death, he spoke to his brothers, which probably here is used in the more general sense of kinsmen, of relatives, because some of his brothers had probably died at this point, but his brothers or their children, he gathers them together. They were all sons of Israel, uh, the people of Israel, and he would pass on the covenant hope to them. God's going to visit you. God is going to bring you up out of this land. God's going to bring you into the promised land. He also gave them directions about his bones. I'm so confident God's going to bring you up to the land that I want you to bring my bones with you when you go back to the land. You can keep my bones here with you, but then when you go up, bring my bones back, bring my body back, bury it in the promised land. So he was embalmed. He was mummified. Uh, he, 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 his bones were faithfully kept as the people of Israel would await that day, kept in a coffin. Uh, I've read that that's the same, I didn't look it up, but the same word as for the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's an Ark of his bones, uh, that this would be kept with him in their time of Egypt to remind them of that promise, of that future that awaited them. Later, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him in the Exodus, and the Israelites buried Joseph in his land near Shechem when they arrived in the promised land. This is the part from Joseph's life that Hebrews makes note of as a demonstration of his faith. In Hebrews 11.22, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. At the end of his life, he was confident that God would fulfill his promise, which he had spoken to Abraham and to Israel, that they would bring them back out of Egypt to the promised land. He gives direct mention of the exodus and direction concerning his bones. He looks forward by faith. What do we have to look forward to? Has God promised anything for our future? Looking forward by faith, the equivalent would be to look to both what God will do for his church in history and what he will do for his church in the age to come in glory. In history, God will not cast off his people. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. He'll care for them. He'll deliver them from those who would seek to annihilate them. He will uphold them, preserve them from heresy and error. He will come to their aid, that is, to visit them. That's the idea of visiting. It's not like God left them, but he will come to their aid. Even as he came to their aid in sending Christ, you notice that Zechariah uses that same language. He has visited us. Well, he also continues to come to our aid to revive his church, to strengthen his church, to deliver them from error, to uphold them from generation to generation. God will turn his face upon us. He'll build up the gates of Zion. Uh, he will restore his people as in the days of old. The church deals with sin and curse in every era, but even from the history of the Old Testament, we can see, as it has been in the New Testament era, that the church goes through different experiences, different eras, different contexts. Sometimes the church is a minority within a broader culture that is tolerant of it, like Israel was initially in Egypt. They were a minority. They didn't own the land. They, they were somewhat marginalized, but they were also favored by the powers that be. They, they were... Uh, tolerated. Other times, the church is oppressed and persecuted by the powers that be, uh, as Israel would later be in Egypt, uh, being oppressed 
and bound by slavery and even uh, attempts to kill off the male children under severe persecution. There's other times where the church is revived and flourishes in a society and government which is largely Christian, as was the case of Israel and Canaan, uh, where they were able to construct their own systems according to God's law and to, to live in that society, which, of course, wasn't free of problems, uh, had its own challenges. Uh, but the church, even in the New Testament era, has had all those experiences as well. But God will care for his church and not cast them off. He will visit his people. But it's also true that God will visit his people and bring them to heavenly glory. At death, God visits believers, and he brings them to himself in heaven. And there will come a day on which Christ shall visit us in glory and great power to judge the living and the dead and raise us up out of our graves and give us the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just as God would visit his people in Egypt and bring them into the promised land, so he will visit us coming in the clouds of heaven with great glory to bring us into our inheritance in which the meek will inherit the earth, the new creation, heaven and earth united. Uh, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, which we will dwell with God forever. Notice also that their inheritance in the land was theirs by promise. Joseph didn't tell his brothers to earn the land by their good works. If you obey God enough over these 400 years, maybe you'll merit the opportunity to get into the promised land. Is that what he said? No. No, it wasn't theirs by law, it wasn't theirs by works, not by merit of their own. But their place in the land was theirs by, by promise. The inheritance was theirs by promise. They were to believe that God would fulfill his promises. So for us, the eternal inheritance does not come by your merit. You do not earn it by your works, but by God's promise in Christ, received through faith. As Bollinger, one of the reformers, said, we must think that the kingdom of heaven and the other special gifts of God are not as the hire that is due to servants, but as the inheritance of the sons of God. So believe in the promises of God like Joseph. Look to the future with faith in God. Pass on that vision, that faith, and that hope uh, that the church might continue to look to God for its future. So remember the faith of Jacob and Joseph. Remember the honor of Jacob and the kindness of Joseph, both prefiguring Christ as also things to look forward to or exercise ourselves. And through it all, remember the sovereignty and good purposes of the Lord our God, that he uh, means for good, uh, that he works out all things according to his purpose. And he will crush the serpent. He has crushed the serpent through Christ. That he is uh, shedding his grace upon people as he separates them from the devil's kingdom and has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let us give glory to him. Join with me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your word and your promises. Give us a solid rock upon which to stand. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we might live boldly uh, lives of virtue, that we might 
pass this on to our children, and that as the, the patriarchs of old, we might grow in, in virtue and in faith, that we might uh, encourage others as well and encourage one another as we uh, journey on, as we look to the glory that is to come. We pray that you would indeed visit your church in grace and power today through your word, that you might revive us yet, make your face to shine upon us, that we might be saved and restored, that we might not be like a garden broken in and trampled by the swine and, and wild animals, but rather to be a vineyard well-kept, bearing good fruit, and proclaiming your name among the nations, blessing them. We pray, Father, that you would also uh, preserve us by your grace, that when your Son shall come in power and great glory, we might rejoice to behold him, uh, that we might receive that eternal inheritance, being blessed with you forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.